You're going to notice, uh, if you have your bulletin open along with your Bible, that there's only two verses that I'm going to read to you this morning from Exodus 25. They're verses that we heard last week. And they go like this, starting with verse 8. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Two verses that then get into some incredible detail. Two verses that indicate a building project is about to start. The Lord, the God who the heavens were told from Scripture, the heavens cannot contain, is calling upon his people to build a house, to pitch a tent for him. The creator of all things, the God who speaks the universe and all of its contents into being, takes an offering. This God provides and equips each person with talents, resources, and creativity and invites his people to use their gifts on his behalf. But when it's all said and done, what will the people have? What will they have accomplished? I mean, in one sense, if we step back together, they will have built a glorious tent house for someone who didn't need it. Two million people will construct, I have to say, I would have to believe, is the world's largest and most ornate traveling RV for someone who gets around pretty fine on his own. So what's going on here? What is the purpose of the Bible's first capital campaign? That's what I want us to reflect on this morning, the meaning and purpose of the tabernacle in the wilderness. Roughly 40% of the book of Exodus is dedicated to the building, the description, the dedication of this project. And this morning we're not going to have time for a full-fledged treatment, but I'd like us to take the nickel tour to start. I'd like us to take the nickel tour of the tabernacle as a way of then stepping back and appreciating its design and significance. So if you would, without having to go through the chapters, trying to condense all of that, as you approach the tabernacle, what would you see? And we will have some slides on the screen. What would we see? The tabernacle consisted of three sections, an outer court, the holy place, and the holy of holies. Now, a curtain consisting of purple, blue, and scarlet yarn uh, linens measuring about 150 feet long, 75 feet wide, and about seven and a half feet tall marked the outer courtyard. You can see it there in the slide. And there's only one gate into the courtyard. It's 30 feet wide, and it's located on the east side. And when you entered the gate, when you entered the gate, you were confronted with the first piece of furniture, the brazen or bronze altar. The bronze altar was the place of sacrifice. Animals were offered on this altar, and the blood of the animals was shed for the sins of the people. And then once you got past the bronze altar, you came to the bronze basin. And the bronze basin was the place that the priests used to cleanse themselves. They were required to wash here before entering the holy place. And actually, a feature about the bronze basin was there were mirrors inside of it. And those mirrors reflected the images of the priests as they scrubbed. And it was designed as they saw themselves cleaning to, reflect, to remind them of their ongoing need to be cleansed before they went into the holy place. To not go before the presence of God, if you will, with blood on their hands. And as we went from the bronze basin, actually we couldn't go. Because for your average Israelite, the outer courtyard was the extent of what you got to see of the tabernacle. It was only the priest who could make the short distance from the outer courtyard into the tabernacle proper, into the holy place. 
The holy place and the holy of holies was actually the tabernacle, and it was covered by gold-plated boards that were held together by golden rods. And there were actually four coverings that decorated the ceiling of the tabernacle. If you looked up as you entered the, the holy place, you would see them. And the, the, the four coverings were designed not only to be decorative, but to protect the inside of the tabernacle from the sun, the wind, and the rain. And from the inside out, the inner lining of the tabernacle was made of fine linen, and it was embroidered with figures of cherubims. And biblically, a cherubim was an order of angel usually depicted with four wings and four faces, uh, having the face of a human, a lion, a bull, and an eagle. And cherubim in the Bible have served as, are noted as guardians or protectors of the people. And so you saw that on the first layer. And then the second layer was made of goat's hair. The third layer was made of ram's skin dyed red. And then the fourth outer layer was probably made of porpoise or dolphin hide. Again, for its durability and more importantly because it was waterproofing, waterproofing for the tabernacle. Now, that's what you saw as you came in, but as the priest pulled back the curtain and entered into the holy place, they also saw three pieces of sacred furniture, which you can see on the slide. On the right side stood the table of shoe bread. The table for bread was made of special wood and it was plated with pure gold. And on this table were 12 loaves of fat, thin bread in two rows of six each that rested on the table. These loaves represented the 12 tribes of Israel. They represented the 12 tribes that came from the sons and grandsons of Jacob. And there they sat and were replaced each Sabbath with fresh bread. And on the, the left side was the gigantic seven-branched golden lampstand or candlestick. And it had to be large and it was massive because it provided the only light in the tabernacle. There were no windows no other sources of light, and this candlestick, among other things, reminded the priests to depend solely upon God's leading and illumination for the work that they were doing. And then lastly, straight ahead, before you would enter the most holy place, after you entered the Holy of Holies, was the altar of incense. And the burning coals from the bronze altar outside were placed on this altar, and sweet incense was added daily. And as the smoke of the incense curled up to the heavens, this represented the prayers of the people being lifted up to God. Now, after this structure, this piece of furniture, there was a heavy duty curtain, heavy veil that marked the line between the holy place and the holy of holies. And this was there because the holy of holies was a place that only the high priest could enter, the most high priest. The other priest could not enter, only the high priest, and only on one day of the year, on the Day of Atonement. But if we were that high priest and that veil were pulled back, what we would see in the center was the Ark of the Covenant, a gold-covered rectangular box. And inside the sacred container, we're, we're later told, is placed the two tablets of stone upon which is written the, the Ten Commandments, a pot of manna, and Aaron's staff, which budded as a sign of God's faithfulness. And on the top of this sacred chest, serving as the lid, was what was known as the mercy seat. And once again, you see on each side of the mercy seat two statues of cherubim, facing each other, looking down over the mercy seat with their wings stretched out over it. Now, as I told you, only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies, and only on one day of the year, on the Day of Atonement, what our modern uh, Jews call the Yom Kippur. And it was only when the harvest was complete and the high priest sprinkled blood on the mercy seat that there was the forgiveness of the sins of all the people and all the nation. This was the tabernacle structure. This was the structure that was packed up and taken as the Israelites traveled through the wilderness. 
Now, we've only taken a cursory grant, glance at, at, at this, and like I, I said, we don't have time. There's so much more we could talk about, just about each piece of furniture and, and, and all that's described both in Exodus and later again in Leviticus. But even the briefest consideration of this project makes, helps us to see and understand a couple of things in a different way. And first and foremost, I hope that what we see in, in this description, this picture of the tabernacle, is how worship is to be a central element of our lives. We've talked about that before as a, as in other ways as we looked at God's word. But the tabernacle, once again, in a unique way, reminds us how central worship is to our lives. Notice the design of the tabernacle. From what you got to see, and if you were to read through these chapters, the incredible, detailed description that is given. All of the chapters about the tabernacle, interestingly, in Exodus and later on in Leviticus, have more to do with the details of the building, the details of the tabernacle, than they do with the rules of the tabernacle. Proportionally, there's much more of a description of the details. And this is because, in case you forgot, this is God's design. Moses didn't come up with this. Aaron didn't come up with this. This is the heart into the kind of building project that God would do. Moses was given God's design. And in fact, we're told that God is very specific with Moses. Make sure you build it exactly as I have laid it out for you. So this is God's design. And everything about the design in the briefest tour that we've taken, I hope you see that it, it points beyond the individual, beyond the community. It's in many ways larger than life. It grabs your attention. And it takes a person, if they were to step in beyond our normal tunnel vision, our self-absorption, and immediately draws us to look up and our eyes to get bigger at what we see. The, the later writers of the New Testament will tell us that God's design for the tabernacle, what we see that takes our breath away, is a shadow of heaven. When we worship, God desires for us to reach for, to perceive heaven as it is on earth. That's one thing that the tabernacle brings out to us about worship being the center of our lives. Jesus doesn't just teach us to pray on earth as it is in heaven, but points back that God is continually about bringing heaven to earth so that we would be lifted up, so that we would be given reason to be driven to our knees to worship as God's people. And, and even from what we, we can surmise from pictures, what we see is elegant and beautiful. And I think in, in many ways, the elegance and beauty, the, the, the ornateness of the tabernacle also reveals something about worship that we, we, we pass by, especially today. And, and it's that God, yes, intends for our worship to be obedient. God wants our worship to be driven by obedience. But what we see when God shows us what he can build, what God tells the people to build, is that God also wants our worship to be driven not only by obedience, but to be expressed through artistry. Our God is interested in creativity. Our God is interested in beauty. And we've had a tradition in the church, particularly in the Protestant church, where for other reasons we've shied away from that. And part of why here at Grace we're trying to cultivate more of our artistic community is because I believe the scriptures are really clear that we worship a very creative God, a God who thrives on artistry, creativity, when we worship together. Now, the other thing that you'll notice about the tabernacle beyond the design is the location. Do we notice where the tabernacle is located? The physical position of the tabernacle, I think, makes a very important theological point about our worship. It's placed at the center of the Israelite encampment. It's placed at the center because worship was to be at the center of Israel's life and identity. The Lord's presence was at the center of the Israelite community because the Lord's presence is to be at the heart, the focal point of our life. 
Worship is not an end in and of itself. Worship's not this thing we do amongst other activities. The positioning of the tabernacle is God's way of telling us that worship is what we are about. It is who we are and what we do. And worship is about a relationship, a God-centered relationship. And so what this reminds us is God is not to be an afterthought in our lives. Our worship of God is not to be peripheral. And many of us, sometimes, don't we approach Sunday that way? Okay, went to Sunday service, check, moving on. And yet the tabernacle was physically placed in the heart of the community so that day in and day out, people would be reminded that God's not an afterthought. God's not peripheral. God's the heart, the focal point of our lives. Everything pointed to the center. Everything drew people into the center. And I think this is helpful for us because we, we need to step back and ask ourselves how we evaluate worship. You know, it's an interesting thing about the history of the church. I don't, I'm sure some of you know this, that long, long ago when we used to build churches, we didn't even call them churches, we called them cathedrals, we followed similar, a pattern that we see here in Exodus in that when a community was built, it was built around the cathedral. It was built around the sanctuary. That was the centerpiece of the town. Everything was built around that because that was the, the main location where life took place. And in the construction of cathedrals that we can see in Europe and in some select locations in the United States, very similar to the experience when you would go in the tabernacle, you were designed to come in and to look up. The incredible beauty, the incredible architecture, design, the, the, the colors, the stained glass was all designed to lift your eyes up to heaven, to create an otherworldly experience in the midst of your life. And in fact, in the design of many of these sanctuaries, it was when you left that you saw an incredible tapestry, a picture of the world. Again, in a missionary way, reminding you that you were leaving the presence of God, so to speak, and going back into where we're called, the world. And somewhere along the way, we stopped building sanctuary. Somewhere along the way, we stopped building cathedrals. And I think most of us probably know why. It all began with the Industrial Revolution. It all began when we got bigger and better at building stuff, at running our own lives. And the next thing you knew, communities weren't built around the cathedrals anymore. Communities were built around the factory. Communities were built around the place of business. And it's a trend that still continues to this day, as in most communities, we build around the shopping mall. Where's the mall? And you build the community around it. And in fact, it's that shift in our life as human beings that led to a design shift in churches. Cathedrals never had crosses on the top of them because they were in the center of the town. People knew it was in the center. But when the Industrial Revolution came around and we started building factories and building our life around our work, churches put crosses on the top of their buildings so that that way in the midst of a landscape that was now filled up with other high buildings, people knew where the church was. The cross stood out to remind people this is where you can go to find God in the midst of all this chaos. Beloved, that, that's just a brief tour of architecture, but it also reflects our daily lives in terms of worship. How, think about how this reflects how most of us today evaluate our worship of this God, how we come into worship. I, more and more, and I've said this before, but it bears repeating again, people, when they talk about worship at this church or at other churches, places they go, the primary questions they say or the way they respond is, does it move me? Does it feed me? And worship even today has become even more functional. We're told by church planners and people who grow churches that even this is outmoded. This is outdated. And so we take abandoned warehouses and we take abandoned malls or coffee shops and we engage more functionality rather than form. Saying that people are not comfortable with all of this churchy stuff. They want something that looks like what they see every day. Do we see how counter that is to what God presents here? 
It begs the question, both in terms of the design of our churches and in our approach to worship, whose plan are we following? God's plan or our plan? And when we evaluate worship, is it about whether we're fed? Is it about whether we are moved? Or is it about whether God is at the center? Somewhere along the way, the tabernacle reminds us to re-ask the question. The tabernacle reminds us that worship is at the center of our lives and and not just saying it, but really wrestling with what that means. But the tabernacle also reminds us in a very profound way that we lose when we design our buildings differently that sin matters and that God is holy. The layout of the tabernacle, as we've heard it described, reflects this ongoing tension in our worship that we, we don't talk about a lot much these days. This tension between a God who is infinitely other infinitely holy, and we struggle to define what holiness means, and so we use words like set apart and perfect and pure, but probably the best way to appreciate the holiness of God is to contrast it with ourself. If God is infinitely other, we are together finitely the same. Oh, we may be diverse in our upbringing, in our backgrounds, in our experience, but we're finitely the same in our imperfection, our brokenness, our sense of incompleteness that everything's not right. And in contrast to that, God is perfect, holy. And what the tabernacle draws out for us is that while we worship a God who desires to be with us, dwelling among us isn't easy. And dwelling among us isn't without sacrifice. Now, I I know that the concept of sin has fallen out of fashion. We don't talk about it a lot because that won't get people into the church it's kind of outmoded and unpopular. But I think part of the reason for that is that we've been so, so narrow in our definition of sin. And I think part of the narrowness of the definition of sin, when we talk about this idea of God is so infinitely other and we're so finitely the same, people immediately get offended because they perceive God's holiness, this idea of sin, as being the same thing as when you were in uh, elementary school and you were picking teams for kickball. You know? And somehow it's like God doesn't want you on his team. You're like the last person that's going to get picked because you're lame. That's our sense of what we, when we talk about the holiness of God and our own sin. And yet this is not the biblical picture at all. When God speaks of the sin that keeps us from him, the sin that gets in the way, it's not an idea, it's some subjective, vindictive description that God gives. It's not intended for us to feel, for us to feel like we're, we're the lowest of the low. The description of sin that's given is giving this understanding that we're, it's an objective difference. That when we we compare ourselves to this God and we try to come in the company of this God, it's not a matter of God doesn't want us on his team. It's a matter of we're out of our league. We feel smaller, inexperienced, unprepared. Have you ever had that experience in your vocation or whatever it is you love to do? You like to play sports. You like to dance. uh, You're a public speaker. Have you ever, and you're good at it, but all of a sudden you come into the company of someone whose heads and shoulders above you. And you come in and you feel like you're so small, you feel like I shouldn't even contribute because I can't compare in terms of my abilities. Think of that with God, but not just in one area, but in all. And that's the idea of God's holiness. That's what the tabernacle is drawing out, this objective difference that we are not God and that God is infinitely more than we are. And I think it's important that we understand that rather than as something that beats us up, but important so that we appreciate why we need to recapture a theology of sin And an understanding of God's holiness compared to our sinfulness is so that we can appreciate the incredible condescension on God's part for our sake. The tabernacle represents something phenomenally inconceivable, that God takes his infinite glory, his otherness, and confines it into a tent. 
We should be left breathless. In the same way that we encounter that person who's so much more experienced, so we're, when we feel out of our depth, when we're starstruck, as we like to say, we should be a thousand times more when we consider the lengths that this God will go to to dwell among us. And if we, if we allow ourselves to get to that place, we will see the tabernacle not as a, 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 an object that causes us to cower in fear, but as a place of grace. It's a place of grace. It's an invitation. It's a means of access for someone like us on the outside. It's a means for us to be able to approach a God who is so wholly other. The sinner and his sins cannot go to heaven. Someone who is imperfect cannot stand before that which is perfect. That sense of, again, being out of your depth with someone else. So God, in the same way, in this cosmic way of this bridge between sin and holiness, comes and brings heaven to earth through the tabernacle. At the center of the Israelite life was the tabernacle, but do we notice that at the center of the tabernacle to draw out this heart of God was the mercy seat. The center of the whole structure of Israelite worship was the mercy seat, designed to give one pause, but ultimately to give an individual and a community dignity. The purpose of the tabernacle is to remind us that we have a God who calls us to worship not so that we would be filled with guilt and shame, but so that we would be filled with dignity, so we would be encouraged. And if you doubt my interpretation of this, because maybe it's not what we often hear when we're in Exodus, go to Leviticus, where God himself makes it this plain. God says to his people, I will put my dwelling place among you and I will not abhor you. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to walk with heads held high. I will not abhor you, God says. The verb used here in Hebrew, abhor, can also mean pollute. God is assuring Israel that he will not regard them as vile or polluted or despicable. So the tabernacle represented not something that caused people to realize how burdened they were with guilt or shame, but instead the tabernacle represented for an Israelite that God dwelled among them. God dwelled among them to encourage them, to dignify them as a people and as a nation. Is that our picture of God? Invoking the holiness of God is not something that should cause us to be frustrated or offended. Invoking the holiness of God wasn't supposed to lead the people into depression. And for many of us, that's where we've been burned by the church. We don't talk about sin because we've been burned by how awful and scummy we are because we're sinners. We're a stench in God's nostrils. And I'm here to tell you that the book of Exodus and other places in the Bible say something different. They say that sin and God's holiness is not called us, is called about calling us into depression, into constant fear or lifelessness. God's expectation is freedom. That's why the book's called Exodus. Freedom. God wants us to be released, to realize that we are valued this much by God, that God wants us to be redeemed, to be restored, not to be filled with fear, but to be filled with joy. Beloved, we worship a God who will settle for nothing less than to be known, to be embraced by us. No matter how far away, no matter how much in the muck and the dirt we are, this God is relentless. From the very beginning, we're told that the Lord walked with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in the late afternoon. And ever since the tragedy of our great divorce from this God, the moment that we hid rather than walked with this God... We can see the Lord from Genesis to Revelation progressively moving closer and closer to us. This God is again relentless in his pursuit. He will not stop until he has accomplished his eternal purpose in your life and mine. The Lord, 
brought down his glory to the tabernacle to dwell with his people. The root word for tabernacle is also sanctuary, set apart, holy place. The reality of the tabernacle represents a profound, earth-shattering, jaw-dropping juxtaposition that God is set apart as holy, as distinct among his people, and yet this same God is gracious enough to make his home with them. We have a saying, home is where the heart is. If home is where the heart is, the tabernacle reveals the great love of God for his people. For the tabernacle is not even just a building. Remember, it's a tent, a dwelling that's always being dismantled and built up again. God was willing to be a pilgrim. Now, some people will come and stay with you if you've got a house, but imagine if you lived in a tent and you moved around a lot. How many people are going to want to stay with you? I mean, we like camping for vacations, but how many of you would like to live like that every day of your life? God is willing to become a pilgrim with his people. He's willing to live in a mobile home because his people were always on the move. Beloved, simple but profound. This God is always willing to go where we are. And since the days of Moses, we know the beauty of looking at the tabernacle is we have an even bigger picture. We know that since the days of Moses, that God has extended that love in a far greater way. Using the same word for tabernacle, the Apostle John starts his gospel, starts the first chapter of his gospel telling us the word became flesh and dwelt among us. If you were to translate the original Greek, literally what this would read is, so the word became flesh and pitched his tent, made his home among us. Jesus is the new tabernacle. He is God with us, Emmanuel. The coming of God the Son to earth to indwell our humanity as Jesus Christ is an even greater display of heaven coming down to earth, even more mind-boggling than a traveling RV. Jesus Christ has pitched his tent and made his home in our humanity. And yet, you and I know it doesn't even end there. If your mind's not spinning yet, let me go further. The scriptures tell us it doesn't even end there. We exist in an even greater expression of God's desire to be with his people. We are part of something even greater in God's eternal plan of redemption. Paul, Peter, remind us in their letters at different times to the Ephesians, the Corinthians, that when Jesus returned to heaven, he sent his spirit to personally indwell his people and to specially indwell his gathered church. That's what we celebrated with Bryson this morning through baptism. This reality, in other words, the reality that Jesus is the cornerstone of yet another building project. God is building a new everlasting tabernacle and it involves you and me and Bryson and every believer down through the history of the church. Think about it. Think about it. When's the last time we hear about the tabernacle? If you know your Bible, when's the last time we read about the tabernacle in the Bible? It's at the end, in Revelation. In the book of Revelation, John is given a picture of a new heaven and a new earth and the new Jerusalem. And the apostle John tells us, he hears a loud voice coming from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And then John goes on to share with us. Get it. Listen for it. I saw no temple, no tabernacle in it. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. 
As the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Beloved, the Lord God came down and met with his people, filled his glory in the tabernacle, and now he dwells in his new temple that is constructed of spiritually living, regenerated believers in Jesus Christ. And God chooses and places individual believers into his tabernacle. And as he builds it, the New Testament church, again and again, day after day, becomes a living, growing organism intended to be the dwelling place of God. We come to this story in Exodus, and you can't help when they're building this to remember a question that they asked right on the verge of getting to Mount Sinai. When the Israelites were rescued from Egypt on their way through the wilderness, at some point in the midst of their first tests with food and water, the Israelites, in a moment of frustration, before they get to Mount Sinai and encounter the presence of God, hear God's intent to come and tabernacle among them. The people cry out to Moses in a fit of desperation, Is the Lord among us or not? And what we see in the 40% of the book of Exodus, what we get to read is how the people came together to build the answer to their question. But the question that they asked hasn't gone away. It's still the question that people around us are asking to this day. People around us are asking who don't know. People around us are asking who don't believe. People around us are asking who've been burned not by the fire of a holy God, who've been burned by the failure of the church. People around us are asking, is the Lord God among us or not? And if we are, as Paul declares, the temple, the tabernacle of the Lord, if we are God's new building project, his means of dwelling with others is through us, then the real question is this. What exactly are we building with our lives? What exactly are we building with our lives if people around us, for some of us, our very own children, are questioning if God exists, if a generation is before us that is longing but can't see Jesus? Beloved, what have we been building together? What have we been building together? We have more church buildings than we know what to do with. You can move to any any. Uh, fairly populated area in the United States, and you can find a church on every street corner, as we like to say. We are not wanting for buildings. We have more Christian books, more seminars and programs out there for building and revitalizing congregations than we've ever had before. But still, what are we building? I say this to us together. One day we're going to see things in a different light. One day we are going to see things through the light of the Lamb that we hear about in the book of Revelation. And we're going to discover just how compartmentalized our lives are. Just how much we separate the, our faith from the functionality of our lives. We're going to see, in a way that's probably going to be painful, the inconsistency and contradiction that marks so many of our words, so many of our decisions and our actions. And we're going to understand that our emphasis is in the wrong place that we were pointing in the wrong direction. And suddenly we are going to see, we are going to realize that why those who observed us are left confused and critical rather than convinced and inspired to know the Jesus we profess to follow is because they don't see it in our lives. What are we building? What are we committed to build here at Grace? What are we committed to build here as grace? 
we had to walk through a process to change denominations. And I say this as a, a footnote on, because we need to move forward. But if you didn't understand this, if you don't know this, let me tell it to you pastorally. As much as it's a process we had to go through and we went through it well, let me tell you that what is burned in my heart is nobody cares. Nobody cares beyond the people in this room. The countless number of people that I've talked to that are the people that we're supposed to be reaching out to, it has not been an incentive for them to be a part of our community. It's been a reason to stay away. Because all they perceive is conflict, division. All they perceive is you guys can't even agree on what letters are a part of your church. That's how simple it is for them. And we may scoff and say, well, they just don't understand. They understand better than we do. That we are building, what are we building? Are we pointing to Christ? We're past it now. But now is the moment where are we going to spend the same energy and time? Are we going to get as passionate as we were about this, about the people who aren't here? About the people that Jesus has called us to? What is our priority going to be as we continue to build here at Grace? Build as Grace. Who are we building for? Our preferences? Our entertainment? Our respectability, our traditions, do you hear it again? It can't be about our, it has to be about Christ. Beloved, we may not offer sacrifices in an elaborately built tent, but Scripture is clear that we should see our daily lives as a series of sacrifices for God. If we are the Lord's tabernacle, then our worship isn't just located in a church building. Our worship takes place in our homes, our schools, our workplaces, and our communities. Our worship's not confined to the time that we spend together on Sunday. It's expressed each and every day as we minister in the tabernacle of our lives. People see Jesus. People see Jesus when we live our lives open before God. The glory of God is witnessed. The glory of God is witnessed when we do all that we do unto the Lord. No matter what our vocation, no matter what our audience, when we are people who notice those who are suffering, when we are people to, who are willing to listen to those who are ignored, when we are people who are willing to lend a hand when others turn a blind eye, when we are people who open up our hearts when others have hardened them, when we are a people who are willing to stand up and defend others, we reflect the glory of God and we reveal the person of Jesus Christ. It is by divine providence, not my planning, that I am preaching this sermon on Memorial Day weekend. A weekend in which, rightly so, we remember those who have given their lives, men and women who have given their lives in defense of this country. And they gave their lives for what this country stands for. And it is right that we should remember and honor them. And we remember and honor them so that their, what they lived and died for would not go away, would not be forgotten. We remember so as not to forget. As great and as important as that is, we have one who gave his life for all the world. How are we every day remembering so that we would not forget? Telling others, as we will tell the stories of our brave men and women this weekend, telling the story of the God who gave his son so that we might live. I want to close with you with words that are way better than anything I could come up with where Paul speaks with just as much passion but more eloquence in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where he is trying to drive. So if we, any of us feel like we're getting beat up this morning, and I hope you're not, 
This has been the tension within the body of Christ since it was first built at Pentecost. And evidence of this is Paul long ago writes these words to the church in Corinth. Paul, in the same way speaking to us as the new building project of God says, so from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And just a few verses later, Paul says, do not let God's grace be received in vain, for we are the temple of the Lord. Beloved, what are we building? Let us not receive God's grace in vain, for we are the temple of the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen.